You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. There's an old saying that says, all good things come to those who wait. But the truth is, most of us don't like waiting. Uh, We don't want to wait in a line at a grocery store or wait to be seated at a restaurant. We don't want to wait in traffic to get home. We don't want to wait behind other people. And we certainly don't want to be last in line, waiting for everybody else. We want to be first. We want to be picked first on the playground. We want to get to the restaurant first after church. We want others to wait for us. In our culture, we perceive that being first in wealth, in prestige, even just being at the head of a line, that's best. And being last is awful. But today, Jesus establishes a different principle in his kingdom, a principle that shows us that his wisdom is different than the wisdom of the world around us. For Jesus is going to say in today's passage that the last will be first, And that the first will be last. And today as we continue in Matthew's gospel, we're going to learn what Jesus means by this cryptic statement in Matthew chapter 19 verse 13 through chapter 20 verse 16. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew 19 with me. And today we're going to see four points. Number one, the last will ultimately be first because God gives grace to the humble. Number two, The first become last because God opposes the proud. Number three, the last are made first because God enables His people, His humble people, to deny themselves and follow Christ. And then number four, we're going to see the first become last because God's rewards are dictated by grace and not merit. So let's start with our first point, which is that the last will ultimately become first because God gives His grace to the humble. Last week we saw that Jesus left the region of Galilee and He began to head towards Jerusalem, where He's going to meet His destiny, which He's predicted that He's going to go to Jerusalem in chapter 16, verse 21. He says He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So that's where the story is headed. But as we begin this morning, Jesus is still on the road heading to Jerusalem. And there he has a surprising encounter. Look at verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Now we saw last week that Jesus was famous in this region between Galilee and Jerusalem. We saw last week people came to him and formed mobs around him wanting him to work miracles for them. And Jesus healed them. But now we see these people also brought their children to Jesus, wanting Jesus to bless their kids and pray for them. But as these folks approach Jesus with their children, look at what happens. Verse 13, the disciples rebuke these people. Now, we don't know why the disciples objected to these folks bringing their kids to Jesus. Maybe the disciples were in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. After all, they thought that they were all going to get power and wealth when Jesus came into his kingdom. Uh, And they expected that was going to happen just a few days from then. Maybe they wanted to get there quick. Maybe they thought, well, Jesus is just too important to be wasting his time with kids. But whatever the reasons were, they were wrong. Look at verse 14. 
But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So Jesus rebukes the disciples and he tells these parents, no, bring your kids to me. And he explains why. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's that mean? Well, we can take this statement in one of two ways. And actually, I think both of them are true. So really, we should take them in both ways. Uh, First, Jesus may mean this statement literally. He may be indicating that his glorious kingdom is a place for children. And there are about seven passages in the Bible that make an association like this. And I think that passages like this offer great hope for the ultimate fate of little ones who lose their lives. Now, why should we interpret this passage literally? Especially when we interpreted so much of chapter 18 where Jesus talks about children figuratively. Well, back in chapter 18, verse 5, Jesus said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Yes, I previously said that primarily that is a figurative statement about how believers should treat one another. But here we see that Jesus must have meant that statement in a way that was at least literal in part. Because now we see Jesus actually receives little children. So I think we have a good reason for taking him literally here as well when he says that his kingdom is a place for kids. And there is an application for us in this. Friends, as God's people and as an embassy of God's kingdom, our local church needs to value children. God's kingdom is for children, and we need to be thankful for the kids who are here. I have friends who say, I don't want to go to any church where there's little kids because they're going to make a racket. Okay, that is a wrong way of thinking about this. We need to love and appreciate and care well for the kids that God has allowed to be a part of this church. But second, I think that, again, the primary force of Jesus' statement here is figurative. Because back in chapter 18, when Jesus preached his sermon about the child, he was using that child to illustrate a theological truth. Matthew 18, verse 3, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus urges us to become childlike, not in our faith, not in our understanding, but in humility. Little children are by their nature humble because they are dependent on others and they know it. They need you to feed them and change them and carry them around. They know who they are and they know that they need your help. They are not pretentious or arrogant. And Jesus said without that same kind of childlike humility, without that awareness that we have a desperate need for help, we cannot be saved. It's a point he made back in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who inherit the kingdom are are people who are aware of their total dependence upon God's grace. Friends, we need to know today, we cannot commend ourselves to God because we are sinners. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Romans 6 tells us the wages of our sin is death. We cannot reverse that on our own. We cannot undo that just by doing some good works. We cannot merit God's favor. 
Apart from God's intervention, we are all hopeless and helpless. Isaiah 64 says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind blow us away. Friends, we need God's help. We need to acknowledge our awful condition to be saved. And we need God to intervene in our pitiful condition and rescue us. And he has done that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' death, through Jesus' resurrection. And today God is drawing people to himself. He is making us new and he saves us by his grace through faith. And friends, today we need to know that if we want to be saved... If we want to be touched by God's mercy, we've got to be like the little children in this passage. We must come to Jesus Christ seeking his blessing. Because Acts 4 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We've got to humble ourselves, and we've got to ask Jesus alone for his mercy. And as we do this, there's a promise. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Those who see ourselves rightly as lowly, lost sinners, those who see ourselves as being last in God's estimation, who cast ourselves upon Christ, will ultimately be exalted by God. He will make the last first. Friends, we must have this humility to be saved. Because James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, what's that mean? Does that mean if we're humble, we earn God's grace? No, because grace means God's unmerited favor. You cannot earn God's grace. The idea isn't that humility merits God's favor. Rather, the idea is that pride is an absolute impediment to receiving God's grace, because pride guarantees God's opposition. And that's what we see as we come now to our second point, which is that the first become last because God opposes the proud. So now Jesus resumes his journey, and he has another encounter. Look at verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, who is this guy? Well, we're going to see in a minute. He's rich. He's young, and Luke 18 tells us he is a ruler. He's some kind of an elite. And by this, or by this description, we can see right away, this guy's a lot different than those humble children that we just met, right? And as the story progresses, we're going to see this contrast more and more. Now, the rich young ruler asks Jesus a question. And the way that Matthew presents his question here helps us understand what this guy is thinking. See, this ruler believed an idea that a lot of people believed in first century Judaism, an idea that a lot of people believe today, which is that someone can obtain salvation by performing a tremendously good deed. Now, right away, that should raise a red flag if we've been listening to this sermon at all, right? We've just seen that God's grace runs to the humble, to those who are aware of their inability and their need. But this guy comes and he says, hey, if there's a big, cool, good deed, I can do it. I can earn my salvation. This guy is proud. He is self-confident. He lacks the humility that Jesus just said is necessary for entering his kingdom. 
And that tells us in the exchange that follows, what Jesus is going to do with this guy is try to get him to see his desperate need for a Savior. So Jesus answers him in two ways. First, verse 17, Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. See, the ruler thinks he can perform some good deed to be saved, but Jesus challenges him by saying that goodness is a property that belongs only to God. He's saying to the ruler, you aren't good because you aren't God. So you are incapable of performing a good work in your condition. And second, verse 17, Jesus says to him, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, the ruler here holds some false theology. He thinks that if he just does the right, extraordinary deed, he will impress God. He will merit eternal life. That is not scriptural. God never said that. And friends, God doesn't hide the ball from his people. God's not after some unknown secret good deed. God demands repentance and faith. And then he expects us to obey his commands. And as Jesus and the ruler here were first century Jews, the commands that Jesus points the ruler to are the commands of the Old Testament law. Now I've got to tell you, over the years, verse 17 here has generated a lot of confusion. I've heard people teach from this verse that the Bible establishes two ways of salvation. Plan A, if we could just obey the entire law, then we would earn God's salvation. But because we cannot, then we have to fall back on plan B, which is that we need Christ for forgiveness. Okay, friends, that is not what Jesus is saying here. He is not holding the commandments out to the ruler as an alternative gospel. We know that first because the rest of the Bible tells us there's only one path of salvation. By God's grace alone, through repentant faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We cannot earn salvation through the law. Because our problem is not just an issue of outward obedience or disobedience. Jesus said back in chapter 15 that our hearts are corrupt. The law can't make our hearts new. We need to be made new. That can't just be an issue of outward obedience. Moreover, the Bible also tells us salvation cannot come about through obedience to some code. Galatians 3.21 says, If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, so the law is not about establishing a path of salvation. It's about exposing our sin. It's about showing us that we can only be saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. In fact, Galatians chapter 2, uh, verse 21 says, If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So theologically, we've got to understand here, Jesus is not offering some theoretical alternative path of salvation through the law. Second, I would tell you the context is against this idea. See, this ruler has come to Jesus, and his mind is already made up. He's already convinced himself that if he just does some super good deed, that's enough. Some deed that he cannot learn about through the scripture. That's why he's here asking Jesus about it, because he doesn't have any way to figure out what this great good deed is. He's just made it up. It's not substantiated in the Bible. See, this guy is taking his ideas about God and salvation from the cultural and religious milieu of his day. He's not taking it from the scriptures. 
So when Jesus points this man to the scriptures here, this is a rebuke and a redirection from this man's false theology back to the Bible. Jesus is saying, get your nose back in the book and let that tell you who God is and how you're saved. And, and, and those are the deeds that God wants you to do, the deeds that have been commanded in the Bible, not your own made-up super good work. But this guy doesn't listen to Jesus. That's pretty arrogant, isn't it? You come talk to Jesus, you ask him a question, and you're not interested in his answer. This guy's not teachable. It's a huge problem in many churches today. People who you can't tell anything because they think they've got all the answers. Friends, that is terribly dangerous arrogance. And here's what the man says to Jesus when Jesus redirects him. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, which ones? See, the ruler still is convinced that some of the commandments are better than the others. Some will unlock eternal life to him. So he says, okay, Jesus... As I look to the commandments, which ones does God really care about? Which ones are the ones that are really going to let me in if I obey them? He's still not interested in letting the scriptures guide his theology. Rather, he's imposing his false theology on the scripture. Oh, there's a super good saving deed in here somewhere. I just have to find it. But Jesus checks this false idea too. Look at verse 18. And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are many of the Ten Commandments are quoted here, right? Jesus also quotes Leviticus 19.18 about loving your neighbor as yourself. We're going to see in just two chapters, Jesus quotes Leviticus 19 again as a summary of all of the interpersonal commands of the law. So Jesus here is rejecting the ruler's False idea. The, the ruler thinks some of the commands are better than others, and if he just keeps the right ones, he'll get saved. Jesus says, no, no, no. All the commands are the ones that God is interested in. But the commands that Jesus picks here and the order that he presents them in pose yet another challenge to the ruler, another invitation for self-reflection. He starts with the command that the ruler is unlikely to have broken. Have you murdered? Well, probably not, right? And based on the way this conversation goes, it's pretty clear the ruler does not know about Jesus' previous teaching, that if you're angry in your heart, it's as good as murder. So the ruler probably hears, don't murder, and says, oh, I'm good, I've never killed anyone. Next, adultery. That's another bad one, right? And it's a little more common than murder, but the ruler probably hears this and again thinks, well, I'm good. Stealing. That's more common yet. And it's much more unlikely that the ruler could just say, oh, I'm good to this one. After all, he's very rich. And maybe all of his wealth is honestly derived, but has he really never borrowed someone's book and forgiven to, for, forgotten to give it back? I mean, I think that at this point, when he's going to start saying, I'm good to these, it's clear there's some self-deception in this guy. Lying? Who's never told a lie? Well, Jesus, but nobody else, right? Perfectly honoring your father and mother? Look how Jesus ends it. He's asking, have you honestly loved everyone around you in the same way that you loved yourself? See the progression here? It's making it more and more clear to anyone who's paying any attention at all how, how totally we fall short of God's standard. Right? This guy's response after this exchange should be, wow, I have failed in so many ways. Because Romans 3 says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
Friends, we have all sinned so much outwardly and inwardly. When we look at the law, it ought to generate some humility in us. But the ruler is oblivious in his arrogance. Look at verse 20. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? There's no humility. There's no self-reflection. He stands so self-assured in the face of God's word. And he still refuses to move from his false theology. Yeah, 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 Jesus, I've done all that stuff. But answer me, which deed is the one that I really have to get? He's not listening at all. This guy doesn't get it because he totally lacks the humility that Jesus just talked about. Now, how does Jesus deal with someone like this? Does he just send him on his way? Well, Mark 10, 10 21 says that Jesus looked at this man and loved him. Jesus has pity for this guy. He doesn't just kick him to the curb. But neither does he lie to him and just keep him hanging around for the rest of his ministry. No, he tries once more to pursue this hard-hearted, spiritually dead wretch. And praise God that he pursues spiritually dead wretches like me and you, right? But, but this time, Jesus is going to use a different approach with the ruler. He hasn't been able to shake him of this idea that there's this one super good deed that will save him. And he hasn't been able to convince this guy that he's guilty of sin. So now Jesus makes a brilliant move that's going to force the rich young ruler to come face to face with these truths that he's avoiding. This guy wants a super good deed? Okay, Jesus will give him one. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now this verse has also led to a lot of confusion. Because people see this verse and we wonder, well, is Jesus here establishing a command or a universal expectation that all of his people should repudiate all wealth? Is Jesus commanding poverty for all of his people? To answer this, I want to situate this statement in the broader context of Jesus calling disciples in this book. When Jesus previously called disciples, like back in chapter 4 with Peter and Andrew and James and John, or in chapter 9 with Matthew, he says, follow me. And if you look at the end of what he says to the ruler here, it's the same thing he says to him. And we get hung up on all this stuff about giving away his money. At the, at the heart of this command, Jesus says to the ruler, follow me. But Jesus has often said in this book that following him is very costly. Back in chapter 8, Jesus said, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Following Jesus was not like a luxury cruise, okay? It was really tough. There was discomfort. There was opposition. This guy wasn't going to be able to be a rich ruler anymore if he followed Jesus. It would cost him. And sometimes when Jesus summoned a disciple, like he does here, he made very clear that there was an immediate demand upon that would-be disciple that had to be honored. There was an immediate cost that had to be paid. Again, back in chapter 8, we read that another one of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and let the, the dead bury the dead. There is an urgency and an exclusivity to Jesus' call. Jesus must come before all else. And whatever would come between the disciple and Jesus must be abandoned. So in chapter 8, it's this family obligation, this burial. In chapter 10, it's a family tie. Jesus says, 
Whoever loves father or mother or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Chapter 16, it's even life itself. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Following Jesus is always costly. In fact, in chapter 13, Jesus tells two parables. This is the cost of following. Jesus is total. It demands all. So when we think about what, the, what Jesus says to the ruler here against this backdrop, I think that what we see Jesus saying here is not something extraordinary. He is summoning the ruler, and he is warning the ruler that accepting this call to discipleship will require an immediate high cost. Now, the immediate demand that's placed on the ruler here, I think, is specific to his situation. Right? Just as we don't interpret Jesus' statement about letting the dead bury the dead, we don't say, well, that's a universal prohibition on all believers against going to funerals, right? That wouldn't make any sense. It was specific to that guy and his situation. In the same way, Jesus' statement to the ruler here is specific to him and his situation. It was a demand that reflects not only who the ruler was, that he was quite wealthy, but it was tailored to his spiritual condition. Remember, Jesus is trying to show this guy his sin by appealing to the law. And the ruler says, well, I've kept all the commandments. But Jesus now builds a scenario that's going to show that this guy has not kept all the commandments because he has broken the first commandment, which is that you shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus looks at this guy and sees his God is really money. And Jesus warned back in chapter 6, you cannot serve God and money. You've got to pick. And that's what Jesus says to this guy. It's time to make a choice, me or money. And the ruler chooses. Look at verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He chose poorly. Jesus said back in chapter 16, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul. This guy picked his stash of money and condemned himself. So Jesus' instruction to the ruler about selling all he had was specific to his particular situation. And the point of this conversation was to bring this man to a realization of his sin and give him a chance to humble himself and be saved. But he would not. So, no, friends, we're not all under a command to rid ourselves of all of our property. But we would be foolish to imagine that if we met Jesus on that road 2,000 years ago, that he might not make a similar demand to us about something in our lives. Because he has told us again and again in this book that following him is going to cost us something. Friend, what would Jesus demand from you? What idol are you tempted to serve? Maybe for you, it's like the ruler. Maybe it's money. Maybe your wealth threatens to stumble you from Jesus. If that's you, you need to figure out how to, to manage that and not allow that to happen. Maybe you even need to do something dramatic, like what Jesus says here. Maybe you have a different idol. Maybe it's lust. Maybe you need to lose some people's phone numbers. Maybe you need to lose your internet access. Maybe what's stumbling you is anger because you're nursing bitterness and you won't forgive. Maybe your idol is work. And you need to get a new job because all you do is worship your job. Maybe you worship your free time and it's time for you to give it up and get busy for the kingdom. Friends, whatever it is that is impeding you from following Jesus, whatever sin is regularly calling your name, 
Remember Jesus' warning in Matthew 18.8. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Whatever would hinder you from following Jesus needs to go. That's what we need to repent from. That's what we need to turn away from. That is what Christ calls us to. And we've got to be ready to pay up the cost. We've got to surrender all to Jesus. Believing friend, do not imagine that you are exempt from this. Do not imagine that Jesus would make no demand on you. Be honest. What is calling your name away from Jesus in your life? That's what we've got to surrender. But the ruler said, no, that cost is too high. Because in his arrogance, he thought he could do it himself and he didn't need Jesus. And friends, that kind of arrogance will disqualify us from the prospect of salvation. Because while Christ is gracious towards the humble, he opposes and will destroy the proud. And those who are first in the world's estimate, who are first in their own estimate, must be on guard. Because Jesus says the first will become last. All right, we come now to our third point. The last are made first because God enables his people to deny themselves and follow Christ. As Jesus watches the ruler walk away, he comments on what happened. Verse 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we live in a rich society, and that's impacted the way that churches often treat these kind of passages that warn about the dangers of wealth. So when churches encounter a passage like this, we'll often first up say, well, Jesus is not teaching salvation by poverty. The poor are not all saved, and the rich are not all lost. And that is absolutely true, right? While many passages in the Bible presuppose that the people of God are generally poor, the Proverbs also tell us bluntly that poverty is not always a good or a spiritually virtuous condition. It's often the result of sinful folly. In the same way, there are some godly rich people in the Bible. Abraham and David and Solomon and Joseph of Arimathea. Friends, salvation is not a socioeconomic status. That's all true. But sometimes after we say that, we end the analysis and we miss the real point, which is there's a warning here. Wealth can pose a substantial spiritual threat to us. Yes, there are some godly rich people in the Bible, but most of the rich people in the Bible are not godly. There are a lot more Pharaohs and Ahabs and Belshazzars and Caiaphases and Herods than there are Jobs. And that's not an accident. Because as Jesus says here, it's really difficult for a rich person to be saved. Because wealth presents a lot of demands. You've got to work hard to grow it, and then you've got to work hard to maintain it, and you've got to be vigilant not to lose it. And most of us who have high-paying jobs can wind up becoming workaholics, endlessly striving to keep making that money. Wealth can demand that we surrender all to it rather than Jesus. And often we do. We cannot serve God and money. And wealth is so dangerous, friends. Hear me on this. It is so dangerous that Jesus says it's, bigger, it's, it's easier for a big old camel to go through the eye of a little sewing needle than for a rich person to be saved. Now, maybe over the years you've heard a different interpretation of this. I've heard this idea that, oh, well, the eye of a needle here is not the eye of a little needle. No, there were walls around Jerusalem, and 
There was a gate in the wall that was called the eye of the needle, and a camel could get through it if it got down on its knees. Okay, friends, that is false. There is no evidence for that. That is something somebody made up to soften this warning so that rich people listening to them would not feel the intensity of Jesus' words and consider their ways. The eye of the needle Jesus is talking about here is the hole on a sewing needle. And a camel won't fit through that hole. That's the idea. It's really hard. It's impossible. And the disciples understand that, and they despair. Look at verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? There's a lot of prosperity theology in first century Judaism. The disciples would have thought, Well, hey, a rich guy, he must be blessed by God, right? That's why he's rich. So if the rich, if the people blessed by God, if it's almost impossible for them to be saved, what chance do the rest of us have? That's what they're thinking. Verse 26, Jesus isn't going to soften it. Not one bit. Look at it. Look at what he says. But Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. That's some bad news, right? Salvation is impossible for man. For the rich, for the poor, friends, none of us can merit God's salvation. Our sin has disqualified us from God's glory and no deeds can offset that. No work can merit his favor. But thankfully, Jesus continues, verse 26. He says, but with God, all things are possible. What we could never hope to achieve in ourselves, God can do and he has done it. He has sent his son to live the perfect sinless life we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved. And he's risen from the dead. And friends, Jesus Christ has opened the way of salvation. And God is graciously drawing people to himself, enabling us to believe, enabling us to do what would be otherwise impossible, to turn away from our sin to Christ, to live lives of faith and obedience, to war against and obtain victory over our sin. If God didn't do all the work, how are spiritually dead slaves of sin like us supposed to ever turn and follow Jesus? How could we ever be willing to fight our sin or make large life changes in obedience to Christ's command to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? God had to do it. God has to make us new. God has the power to liberate us from sin. According to 2 Timothy 2, he grants us repentance. He enables our good deeds. And that's great news. Because if it was up to us, we're all lost. But God is faithful. And he enables in his people what he commands. But the disciples still seem rattled by all this. They want some reassurance. Look at verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we left everything and followed you. What then will we have? The rich young ruler wouldn't abandon all to follow Jesus. So Peter wants to make sure that Jesus remembers he and his friends did. And bluntly he says to Jesus, Hey, what's in it for us? Now this is not a good response to Jesus. Jesus just said salvation is entirely dependent on God who can do the impossible. That ought to stir our hearts and gratitude to Christ, right? But instead Peter says, oh, Jesus, commend me because of my good decision making. He's drifting away from the humility that should characterize God's people. And Jesus will set him straight in a minute. And yet what Peter has said is also partly true. The disciples have paid a high cost to follow Jesus. And soon they will pay a higher cost 
Most of them are going to die martyrs' deaths. So by God's grace, indeed, the disciples have followed Jesus and have been willing to surrender all. And now Jesus promises they're going to be rewarded. Look at verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus says the disciples will be rewarded with positions of honor in the future when the kingdom comes in its fullness, and we're going to talk about that more next week. But a time is coming when Jesus is going to sit on a throne. And Jesus promises that his disciples will sit alongside him and execute some judicial function with him in the future. Now, when will this take place? Well, the text doesn't say. Some people think this talks about the final judgment. Some people think this talks about the eternal state. I think Jesus is talking about an earthly kingdom he will establish before the eternal state. It's not super clear here. But what we see is the 12 are promised eternal rewards. And more than that, verse 29, Jesus says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus says, I'm going to compensate you for everything you lose in this life for my sake. If we lose money or property because of the gospel, in eternity we're going to be far better off, friends. If we have lost family members because of our faith, then in the community of the local church and across eternity, we're going to wind up with hundreds of times more brothers and sisters and father-like and mother-like figures than we ever had in this world. If our health or life are taken because of our faith, we can take heart because God will give his people eternal life. Whatever we suffer for Jesus now, we will reap much more in the end because of our loyalty to Jesus. That is what he promises here. Friends, Jesus is not a hard master. He's not trying to push us into unpleasant losses without the promise of a reward. No, he sees what we endure for him, and he loves that, and he will reward it in this life and forever. But broadly the point is this. Look at verse 30. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. In this life, the rich young ruler was first. He was honored by men. People thought he was blessed by God because he had stuff, and he had positions and power and whatever, but in eternity, he'll be last. He will be excluded from life. And in this world, the disciples were regarded as last. First Corinthians 4 says they were viewed as the scum of the earth. They were rejected. They suffered. But in eternity, they will be first. Not because they're great, but because God is great and God can do the impossible and he worked a work of grace in their lives that enabled them to repentantly turn to Jesus in faith. And follow him despite the cost. And friends, that's how it is for us too if we know Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1 says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Right? If the world was drafting us, not many of us are going to be first round picks, right? And that's by design. Because 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Friends, we don't need to chase the world's standard of greatness. We don't need to try to be first in the world's estimation. We need to follow Christ. 
And we need to jettison whatever would divide our loyalties or would draw us into sin. And by God's grace and the power of His Spirit, He enables us to do that. And He will grow us in this life. He will make us more like Himself and more able to bear up. He will perfect our repentance. He will persevere us to the end. And He will bring us safely home to enjoy the splendors of His glory forever. But believing friends, as we look back at our lives and see where the Spirit's led us, as we see the good things God has done for us, we must not become puffed up with arrogance and look down on others. We must not pull a Peter and say, well, look at me, Lord. I did it, not like that rich young ruler over there. And that's what Jesus warns about in our last point. The first become last because God's rewards are dictated by grace, not merit. All right, so Jesus has told us the last become first and the first become last. Now there's a parable. We'll go through this pretty quickly because I think it's pretty straightforward. Here's what the parable's about, the same principle. The last will be first and the first will be last. We know that because that's how the parable starts and that's how it ends in verse 16 of chapter 20. Here's the parable, chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. This kind of thing still happens today. Go to any Home Depot early in the morning and you'll see guys standing around waiting to get hired. That's what's happening here. Verse 2, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, the standard wage for one day of work, he sent them into his vineyard. Verse 3, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. So after three hours of the first guys working, he goes and brings some more people in. And then he goes out again and again, and he hires some more. Verse 5, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. So he keeps recruiting laborers. Until verse 6, about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. Now this is the last hour of the workday, and he's still hiring. Verse 6, and he said to them, why do you stand here all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. The master shows his kindness to these people who need a job, and he brings them in as well. Verse 8, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. So all the workers get together, and they're going to get paid. The ones who came at the end get paid first, and everybody gets to see it. And as they watch, they're astonished. Verse 9, When those hired about the eleventh hour came... Each of them received a denarius. So those who came and worked only one hour got paid the agreed wage for the whole day of work. That's some amazing kindness from this master to pay a whole day of wages for just a few hours or for just one hour. Now imagine you were in the first group. You'd worked all day and you saw this. You must have thought, hey, they made one denarius. I'm going to make like 12. I worked 12 times as much as they did, right? But what happens? Verse 10. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day and the scorching heat. That doesn't sound fair, does it? They worked harder. They put in more time. They bore the burdens, but they got paid the same. I think quite naturally we think, hey, this is a problem. Those first workers have a good complaint. They've suffered injustice. But what happens? The master responds, verse 13. But he replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this to this last worker as I give to you. 
Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? In actuality, there's no injustice here. The master had an agreement with the first group of workers. They agreed to a wage, and he paid it. He was as good as his word. The issue here has nothing to do with justice or fairness. The issue is the first group of workers are resentful of the master's generosity towards the later workers. They think because the master's been more generous with those other folks, they should get a better deal than what they originally agreed to, an increase proportionate with the uh, amount of extra work that they had done over the first group. We might think, hey, that sounds fair. We like that. And when we say that we like that, we show that actually we prefer a metric of works to the grace of God. Because we may say, I want God's generosity towards me, but when we see God being kind to other people that we don't think deserve it or who seem worse than us according to our own standard, then we find what we really wish would happen is that God would judge based on works and everything else seems unfair. And when we adopt that first perspective, we adopt the sinful perspective of the first workers, the perspective that Jesus is telling this parable to warn against. And once more, he says the first will be last and the last will be first. It's interesting Jesus makes that point here. Because in chapter 19, when he talks about the first and last, it seems like it's a contrast between eternal life and lostness. But now he takes this principle in a different direction. Here, both the first and last receive rewards. In fact, they, seem, they receive the same reward. I don't think the contrast here is between salvation and lostness. Rather, I think this is another application of this same principle that applies to God's people. And the application is this. God's rewards are not dictated by merit, but by grace. Now, we might say, well, you know, 2 Corinthians 5 says that rewards are related to what we do in the body. Aren't rewards related to our conduct? Yes. But friends, our good conduct is never a product solely of our own effort or strength. It is the outworking of the grace of God through the Holy Spirit. God always stands behind whatever good we do, and so whatever we're rewarded for in the end is also a product of God's grace. So nobody ever gets to boast. God always gets all the glory. But what we see here is this. God distributes His grace and His rewards how He wants to, not as we may think He should, not in line with our calculus about who's worthy or not. And so this winds up sounding a lot like the end of the prodigal son, doesn't it? Remember that there was that one son that went off and blew all the money and he comes home? But what's the other son say? He gets mad when the first son returns home and gets a party. And the second son says, hey, I'm angry. My brother's a loser. He was stupid and chased sin. Why does he get the party? I've been obedient the whole time. Where's my party? That's just like these workers here who said, I worked a whole day. I battled the sun's heat. I had all the burdens. Why do I only get the same reward as those who work just that one hour? It's an attitude of selfishness, of, self, of self-exaltation. It reveals a heart that thinks that it has set a standard of excellence to which others aspire. It reveals a heart that has forgotten how sinful it truly is and how dependent on God's grace we still are even long after we've been saved. Friends, we must not be so loveless that we begrudge God's willingness to extend grace to those who don't meet our own self-invented standard. Friends, the standard God is looking for is not our own standard of excellence. It's this, Matthew 5, 48. You be perfect as your heavenly Father's perfect. The standard's perfection. 
And if we tell ourselves, I've got so much zeal, so much obedience, so much evangelism, I come to every activity of the church, I'm a super Christian. Are you perfect? Have you measured up to the Father? Do you imagine that you've arrived, that you don't need God's grace anymore? We must not think so. Friends, being self-congratulatory like that reveals our pride, how we still gravitate towards sin. Friends, if we're on the other side of the coin, if we're always lax about everything, we need, we need God's grace too. We need to repent of our sin. We need to humble ourselves and listen to God and obey. Friends, the grace that God lavishes on us, we must not begrudge when he lavishes it on others, others that we imagine that somehow we become superior to them. That's how the prodigal son's brother thought. That's how the first group of workers thought. And what do we find? Well, they got a reward, but they also got a rebuke. But the workers who came last, who would be the easiest to look down on, they got a reward without a rebuke. Friends, this is a warning against arrogance, which makes sense because this comes right after Peter says, hey, Lord, I'm better than the, the rich young ruler. And I think that what Jesus is saying to Peter and what he's saying to us is be less self-congratulatory. Recognize that whatever you have now and whatever you'll have forever is because God is gracious. And you know, those who may seem to us to be the least worthy are often the most humble and the most aware of their own desperate need. And we see them here lavished with grace first. While those who have forgotten their need and they think that it's all about them, yeah, they get rewarded ultimately, but only with rebuke. Friends, humility is not just something we need to enter the kingdom. It's got to be a rule of life. We must never let ourselves get too high and mighty. We've got to always remember we need God's grace. And if we do that, it's going to make us grateful. You know, look at, look at these guys in this parable. They worked an hour. They got paid 12 times what they should have got paid, right? Friends, we've got a better deal than that. We deserve hell, and we get the new creation. Friends, a humble attitude will give us a more loving, a less selfish, and a less resentful view of others. And it will help us to treat other people with grace, just like God has treated us. So this is how I want to conclude today. I want to ask you first, friend, are you like the little children in this passage? Do you see that you have a need to come to Jesus for his blessing and salvation? Do you see that you cannot save yourself? This morning, are you like the rich young ruler? You say, well, I don't need Jesus. I can do it myself. Or, yeah, Jesus just demands too much. I'm not willing to pay, pay that cost. I'm not willing to submit to him. Friend, you are filled with arrogance. You are on a collision course with God's fury. You are heading down the broad road to hell. Humble yourself and be saved. Cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. Today, are you like Peter? Saved but forgetful that you need a Savior. Saying everybody needs to measure up to whatever my standard is. Friend, wherever we are today, let us return to Jesus. Let us see that pursuing him is worth everything that we should surrender all to him. Let us seek him and his kingdom despite its high cost because it is of infinite value. And Hebrews 12 says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. He alone can give us what we need, friends.